All right. Well, as we've mentioned a couple of different times, so you already hinted to this morning, and you already know it. I'm just going to bring out the obvious completely, is that tomorrow is a new year. 2024. Did you think you'd ever live to see it? Some say no rather quickly. We need to go see 2025 and beyond. You will. I'm confident. you got to have faith. Yeah. But the new year does start tomorrow, so I ask you, are you ready for the new year? Because a lot of people actually are really ready for the new year. And they think that the simple turn of a calendar from one more day to another, which happens to be again for a new year, provide everything they need for a better year than last year. They cling to the hope that that little turn of the calendar will result in something magical. Maybe resulting in for 2024 to have less stress than the previous year or to maybe have better health than they may have had for the last year. Or maybe finally financial stability for them in their life. Or maybe they've had all kinds of relationship struggles throughout all of 2023 for 12 months and now they think we're turning into 2024 will clear all that up. Or maybe they're just simply looking for forgiveness from someone. I mean, all those things can happen in 2024. And people look forward to the beginning of a new year and truly think that things will get better. And they cannot wait to say goodbye, 2023. Good riddance to you. I'm glad it's over. Now I can finally look into the new year. I have a coworker that has had those thoughts for the last couple of weeks. Actually started maybe more than just even before December, maybe before the last couple of weeks, because she has a son who's a senior in high school that has Crohn's and some other type issues, which has been bothering him throughout all of his senior year. It started back in August. In fact, over the Christmas break, his entire time for Christmas break was spent in Riley's hospital. He's just now getting a chance to come home. He's coming home just in time to really start his last semester of the senior year. And She's hoping and praying that this new 2024 year that we're up on that's on the horizon will be much better in health for her son. And I can understand that. I mean, I hope the same thing really for Carly. I mean, Carly's had all kinds of issues too. And maybe you find yourself maybe not in that same situation, but in something similar where you think, I cannot wait for tomorrow to get here because I need this new year to start. I want a fresh start. I want a new set of downs, as it talks about in football. And I'm just ready for it to happen. Well, if that's where you find yourself this morning, maybe today's message can help you. Because if you're looking for that fresh start, looking for something new, there's one word in your vocabulary. Sheila kind of talked about it with the children. But the one word we should have to put into our practice of our lives in 2024, if we're looking for any kind of change, is obedience. We need to be obedient, especially somehow we have not been going about obedience in the last 12 months. So the text today might surprise you a little bit that we refer to it as we think about obedience because today we turn to 2 Samuel, and we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, we're going to refer to 1 Samuel 2 as we get into the message a bit later, but remember in the original manuscripts there wasn't 1 and 2 Samuel. It was just Samuel. And maybe it should still be that way, although we have a first and second book called Samuel. But we'll refer to a little bit of both of it. 
but our reading initially comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, and it talks about the moving of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the story, if you're not familiar with it, as we begin to read it, you may think, well, that's kind of strange. And in fact, it might even disturb you, might even anger you a little bit, because we find then that one man is going to touch the ark, almost kind of to keep it from falling over, and God strikes him dead because of it. Now we'll explain as we go and see how we can apply that to our lives and how it pertains to obedience. But first, let us start with the story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Stand with me this morning if you're able to, as we stand to simply honor the reading of the word. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're only going to read in this particular chapter the first eight verses. But here's what's written in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, talking about the ark that brought to Jerusalem. Verse 1 says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Benadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Benadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God, and Ohio went up before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nathan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, or seven. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Father, Lord, we want to thank you today, Lord, for how we can come together and how we can read upon the story. Lord, many stories in the Bible tell us about how we can hopefully be obedient. And we pray now, Lord, this story would lead and guide and direct us into that thought of obedience and how we can dissect this text then to see how we can understand it but see how we need to be practicing obedience into our life. Well, so I ask the Spirit now to lead and guide and direct us, Lord, to be the words that you want us to hear and for me to say, not words I want to say or to express, but the Spirit will truly speak to our hearts, Lord. And let's receive your message here today and be thankful we shall learn and apply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, well, there it is. First eight verses of chapter 6. Now, as you read that text, notice that verse 8, we go back to this, we'll start there for just a moment, that it tells us, almost obviously, that David was angry with the Lord. I mean, David obviously is perhaps angry because of what happened to Uzzah. And it appears as though David did not understand why Uzzah had to die for touching the ark. But David, I've learned over the years, as you hear this story, is not the Lone Ranger. The other people are like David. They, they are a little agitated, maybe even disturbed. And they read the account and they start asking questions like, well, why did God feel justified in this particular moment to strike down Uzzah? I mean, what did Uzzah do really that was wrong to result in his death? 
Well, to explain those types of questions and have an answer, we have to go back to the beginning of the reading. So let us do so now and go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. And we have to really become a little familiar, if you will, with the military presence that's kind of suggested here in the pageantry as it existed in the day of David being the king of Israel. So notice in verse 1, to go back to the beginning of the reading, the phrase, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. It's suggestive, if you will, of a military campaign. Now notice even the word again, which points then to the fact that David must have previously gathered the men of Israel, which really then refers to a moment in the previous chapter in which he indeed gathered the men of Israel. So look in 2 Samuel chapter 5 for just a moment, starting verse 17. It says this, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And then David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Would you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David's men carried them away. But that's not all. Almost like it happens a second time. Look, verse 22. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam tree. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone up before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and they struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. We stop there. Because while the text, you don't see it stated there very specifically that David assembled the men, it's kind of suggested there and that he assembled a team certainly to begin to battle the Philistines. It's kind of implied that an army of men have been gathered to battle this Philistine army. And apparently then, as you go back in chapter 6 now, this contingent of men, the same men, are once again assembled as the preparations are made to move the Ark of Covenant. But I told you all that to also make sure you see this. Look again at what is missing. In the end of chapter 5, as they prepare the army for the battle against the Philistines, in the beginning of chapter 6, notice something is missing. I mean, he's about to move the covenant. I mean, we see all that begin to happen. He assembles the team, but something is missing. What is missing, and what you see, is that David does not consult the Lord before he begins to move the Ark of Covenant. Now go back to verse, uh, verse 19 and verse 23 of chapter 5. You see that David twice inquired the Lord. He assembled the army. He assembled the men of Israel, the chosen men. He has them assembled. Verse 19, as they're assembled, he inquired, shall I go against the Philistines? It has been taken care of later on, verse 23. Again, he inquired of the Lord. So twice, notice twice, he inquired of the Lord. God gives him direction, confidence, and assurance. But when it came to time to move the ark, he doesn't ask God anything. 
He just assembles the chosen men once more and moves the ark. It's like he makes a plan. Now, granted, a notable honorable plan to honor the Lord for the great victory he has given them against the Philistines, but does so on his own effort. The men are assembled just as before. I mean, he has, he's planned all the pageantry that goes along with the military campaign. he got the pomp and the circumstance. All these men are gathered all to honor the Lord. But forgets one important step. Inquire the Lord. So observe that with 30,000 men or 30 military units, however it is expressed here, they're all involved, and it's notable that the military presence provides the pageantry and security for this major milestone national victory. But David does it before he consults the Lord. In fact, he doesn't consult the Lord at all. But for proceeding, he does not inquire the Lord as he did before. Now, I suggest to you that itself is the beginning of God's anger. But that is not the only reason God is provoked. Go back to the text, look a little further, go back to verse 3. Notice in verse 3, the phrase, they carried the ark of God on a new cart. They carried, along with the mention of a new cart, signals to an astute reader who knows the account and knows Scripture well, how the effort to bring the ark of Jerusalem just kind of flawed. From the very start. I mean, notably, a new cart is, again, maybe honorable. I mean, the cart kind of suggests, if it's a brand new cart, it kind of suggests purity. I mean, nothing settled on it before, there's nothing stained. I mean, it seems logical. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, it's a good idea, perhaps. Well, it seems. However, God had commanded the Levites to put the Ark of the Covenant on its pole and carry it on their shoulder, not on a new cart, not to have it be driven. Exodus 25 actually reveals a very specific instructions concerning the movement of the ark. Verse 14 of Exodus 25 says this, You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. He specifically told them how to move the Ark of Covenant. Yeah, as before David's time. But if you're just kind of curious, God doesn't usually sometimes say something once and then let it fade away. He said it actually two more times about how to carry the Ark of Covenant. He mentioned it again in Numbers chapter 4 and in Deuteronomy 31. So three different times it's mentioned in Scripture about the correct way to move the Ark of Covenant. So while David maybe had then honorable intentions of the new cart, it's just not what God has specifically instructed. Now added to this is the fact that the new cart is actually the Philistine mode of transporting the Ark of Covenant. We'll read again in 1 Samuel chapter 6 after a while when the Ark is possession of the Philistines. As a little side note right now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But for now, observe that it's an honorable action to have the new cart. It seems logical. Brand something new to give to God, the movement of the Ark of Covenant. But it's clearly not as God had expected or had directed. 
So again, while David maybe had some good intentions, his violation of the correct method of carrying the ark really provides strike number two. But there's more. Let's return again to verse three. Notice that not only did they carry the ark on a new new cart, it says it was in the house of Abinadab, and then Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. So three generations earlier, the ark had been left in the house of Abinadab in the custody of a guy named Eleazar. He had been died since the particular time now, between then, and Uzzah and Ohio, his descendants, are now as custodians. So note that the two brothers then, it describes it this way, were driving the new car. They were driving the car, not seated on it, not walking in front of it, not beside it, not guiding it. They were, it says driving. They were driving the new car. We can ask, well, what is wrong with their effort? Well, again, they were not following the instructions. They should have been carrying it, not walking alongside it, not in front of it, not guiding it. Verse 6 actually reveals that they were carrying, not, not even carrying it at all. Again, the new cart is in, is in position here, and they are driving it with this new cart with oxen as provided in verse 6. We've already stated God had commanded the Levites to put the ark on its poles and carry it on their shoulders. It's not at all the mode of transport that God had directed and instructed the people to carry the ark of covenant. So I ask you this. Can you begin to see why God's anger was kindled? Moving the ark of the covenant is an admirable, an admirable thing to do. I mean, God had provided for them a great victory against the Philistines. It's very honorable and admirable to move the Ark of Covenant. But the effort to move the covenant is maybe rushed a little bit, or, or maybe even a bit thoughtless, at least in regards to the mode in which God had established for transport. In short, they were not being obedient. There's a connection. They were not being obedient to the command the Lord had given them to the movement of the sacred Ark of the Covenant. That's how it's connected in this particular moment to obedience. They were not being obedient to the command the Lord had given them when you begin to move the Ark of Covenant. Now, in case you're still confused, maybe disturbed about everything that's happened, we're going to explain more in just a moment, but I thought, well, maybe it's time to make that call. Put time out. with the Lack of obedience is maybe illustrated here and draw a parallel to how maybe we also could be kindled in our anger like God is now here when he didn't follow the instructions. I mean, have you ever given someone, maybe one of your children in fact, a particular task or assignment and they, they completely disregard your instructions and do it their own way instead? Has it ever happened to you? Sheila was telling me that when Kayla was younger, she would give Kayla, and all of our children really, a specific assignment, a task, a duty, a chore, if you will, to clean your room. Clean your room. I mean, how simple is it? Kayla, clean your room. But what Kayla would do her own way is she would take the room, she would take the clothes on the bed, wherever they were, stuff them under the bed, stuff them under there. And it was clean, it was done. 
she really didn't follow the instructions. I mean, you could be angered by that. But it's not just Kayla. I mean, other people do the same thing. Sheila, when she was a bit younger, she was actually dating this handsome young man from Hazleton. He stands before you as the pastor. And she was getting off work at Dairy Queen when she worked in Princeton at Dairy Queen. She would get off work, and her specific instructions was to come home after work. What did Sheila do? Not always did she come straight home after work. It was a particularly clear assignment, task, and duty. Come home after work. Sometimes she'd veer to the left or to the right or to call me, and we would actually have some time together before she would. Now, she made it home, but it wasn't just exactly after she got off work. There was a little detour there. No, it wasn't my fault. When she came to me, I said, what did your parents tell you? She said, go home. I said, well, go home then. I was a good boy. That's why Santa Claus came to visit me. But it just happens. I mean, it happens in life where you give someone some detailed, specific instructions, and they just simply don't follow. They don't do their, want to do their own way. When I was a plant manager working in Mississippi, we had an account we landed for McDonald's. We had line number six of the plant that was dedicated just for McDonald's. We was going to make McDonald's nuggets. Mike, have you ever served McDonald's nuggets before? Yeah, I bet you have. Mike, it works at McDonald's. But we made McDonald's chicken nuggets. Well, it wasn't the only thing that was produced on the line. So McDonald's had a specialty of a, of a, a formula they wanted to use only for the production of their chicken nuggets. No one else could do it. So we'd have to move equipment in and out of the way in order to get it set up for McDonald's. When we weren't running McDonald's product, we had to move it out of the way and use something different. Well, before we landed the account, we had a meeting. We took everyone in the plant, well, the supervisors in the plant, had them come up to my office. We had a dry erase board, the line set up, make everything specific to how it must be done. And when it came time to set up the line, they all understood it in the office. When it came down to the production floor, they did no longer understand it. It seemed because they did it their own way. For me, it was highly frustrating. I probably was angry. It come to pass. But it just happens. It gets frustrating when we actually give someone specific instructions and go to even details, precautions, and they completely disregard it. It becomes frustrating. And we can become angry. In the account, and David is not like one of our children. He's not working at the chicken plant, but he doesn't obediently follow the instructions on transporting the ark as given to his forefathers. It's an honorable thing. It's admirable the way he wants to move it. McDonald again had given them a great victory. But the effort to move the covenant is not conducted in the manner that God had established and directed. It can be viewed as a lack of obedience. A disregard, if you will, to his command. So while admirable, David and the men were not being obedient to the command the Lord had given them, to the movement of the sacred Ark of the Covenant. To maybe put it in summary form, three words, God expects obedience. Now we'll return to that point in just a moment and elaborate even further. But notice that we make the observation, unfortunately, lack of following specific instructions to move in the Ark is not all that provokes God's anger. 
notice as we go back to the text, David gathers the men, of course he's done so, and he's Arkham's place on a new cart. We talked about that. And things are beginning to move. Again, not in the way God had commanded, but look at verse 5. And notice that the joyful procession commences now. As that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So all David and the Israelites were then, I mean, they're celebrating before the Lord. Let me say this. Nothing seems to be inherently wrong with this joyful celebration. The verb celebrate actually indicates joyful exuberance, probably involving some dancing, you know, things the Baptists don't do, right? We don't dance. We do dance. But it's involving dancing, singing, or songs, or celebration. They got the instrumentation there. All these things are happening. There's nothing inherently wrong with any celebration. In fact, it actually tells us. I mean, they've had a great victory given to them. So it actually tells us that when God is good to us, as he is all the time, because all the time God is good, we need to be singing joyful shouts to the Lord. I mean, in the midst of his goodness, it is right to sing and celebrate. There's nothing wrong with that. Go further to verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, here it comes, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. They notice here there's no indication of how far this joyful procession has progressed when it suddenly comes to an end at the threshing floor of Nacon. Now, in case you like the account similarly written in 1 Chronicles 13, you will note then the name Nacon is not given there. I'm just telling you this for information. It's actually Kaidan rather than Nacon. So it is disturbing to you. Some scholars say, well... Nacon may not be the proper name. It may just be a term meaning to strike or to be struck down. But don't let that bother you in any way about 1 Chronicles 13 being written slightly different. Because regardless, and maybe most importantly, look, the oxen lose their footing in an attempt to prevent the ark from being damaged. Uzzah stretches out his hand and grasps the ark. Now, unfortunately, especially now for Uzzah, obviously, although he's not motivated by irreverence, his action is still considered sacrilegious because he violated the holiness of God. But we should remember, of course, that Uzzah, he, he kind of put in a bad position. I mean, he should not have ever been having to move the ark in the way he was moving it. It is not the corrected method of moving. So he touched his hand. Now, go to verse 7. The anger of the Lord, as he touched his hand to the ark, as the oxen stumbled, to perhaps even keep it from being damaged, the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Verse 7 is the verse of the story that greatly surprises the people that are reading it, because we just don't see this coming. It's just not what we think about God. I mean, the phrase God struck him down comes to most people as shocking and perhaps very disturbing. But we need to add this to your understanding. That God had previously warned that the ark must not be touched. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, he says, They must not touch the holy things. The ark is considered holy, lest they die. 
But unfortunately, Uzzah touched the ark. And as he touched the ark, God carried up the sentence just as he said he would. Don't touch it lest you die. He touched it, he died. He carried out just exactly like he said he would. And people hear that and they say, well, that's not right. I mean, Uzzah was only trying to keep him from falling as the oxen stumbled. And yes, that is true. It is highly unfortunate. But once again, the phrase in that verse says, because of his error, reminds us that he should not even have been part of the group handling the ark as he was. Just for your own understanding, you turn to 1 Chronicles 15, 13, it actually begins to admit disobedience was happening. Because 1 Chronicles 15, 13 says, because you did not carry it right the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to his rule or the ordinances. It's still disturbing, though, isn't it? That it would actually happen in this manner, this way. Now, as you're a bit perplexed, maybe still disturbed by what's happened here, let me add this bit of information. It's not going to help necessarily, but let me just kind of add it to your equation. Because this is not the first time that God dealt harshly with someone as it pertained to the ark. If you read again the entire book of Samuel, and put it together, First and Second Samuel, the way it was in the middle manuscript, you put all that together, the anger of the Lord resulting in Uzzah's death is similar to the Lord action he took with among 70 men at the initial transport of the covenant. I mentioned earlier we go to 1 Samuel 6, now we do. Because the ark in 1 Samuel 6 is in the possession of the Philistines. They have had a lot of difficulty. They've had some hardship. And they have learned in the trouble they're experiencing having is because they're in possession of the Ark of Covenant. So the desire to get rid of the Ark of Covenant to remove God's hand against them. So as they begin to get rid of the Ark of Covenant in 1 Samuel 6, they get a new cart and transport the Ark to the men at Beth Shemesh. As the Ark arrives, the men are joyous, and they gaze upon the Ark. And then this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. And he, that's God, God struck some of the men the Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with the great glory. That doesn't help, does it? Because now we see the outbreak against the men the Beth Shemesh is obviously similar. Maybe even somewhat surprising like we just learned in 2 Samuel 6. I mean, they didn't touch it as Uzzah had done. Although it did come with some things you have to read later about some pagan idols. But it does demonstrate the seriousness in which God expects obedience to his statutes and his commands. Especially as pertains to the holiness of the Ark of the Covenant. So now you're wondering, perhaps even wondering and thinking, okay, the Ark of Covenant, never seen it before. Don't understand the Ark of the Covenant. So here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant to help you kind of visualize what we're talking about. And some information pertaining to it that might help you understand why God considers this thing to be holy. Because it is a symbol of faith in the God's presence. Notice it even tells you in the black portion of the slide, as you see the picture, that within the Ark of the Covenant you have the Mosaic Law. You have the manna that provided for the people in the wilderness. 
and you had the rod of Aaron. Notice that even tells you it was made from acacia wood. And then it also tells you the correct mode and method of transport. But they didn't follow this. This is the sacred Ark of the Covenant, considered holy. And then follow specific instructions. So therefore, they were disobedient to what God had commanded. So to sum it all up once more, the key point for us here, or the theme really, is that God expects obedience to his word. He expects obedience to his instructions and to his commands. The lack of obedience arouses his anger. So maybe then as you're hearing multiple accounts of how people have been died from touching the ark or gazing upon it and how it's holy, begin to see what it looks like, maybe now you're beginning to ask and wonder to yourself, does God always, when we have disregard to God's command, does that justify his anger with such harsh actions as death? Or maybe a different question, does disobedience, we're all disobedient, does disobedience always result in God displaying his power in this particular way or magnitude? And perhaps the answer obviously maybe is no. Disobedience to God has not always resulted in such a powerful display of anger and of death of a servant. Case in point, first person I thought of was Saul, the first king of Israel. God had told Samuel, the prophet, who has turned specifically told Saul, the king of Israel, that he should drive out all the Amalekites from the land. So look at 1 Samuel 15. In our student Bible study on Sunday mornings, we study 2 Samuel 15, so we're going to know this account well. But in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel and opposed them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Here comes very specific instruction. Now go, in verse 3, Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Four key words are next. Remember what they are, Paige? What is it? Do not spare them. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. In other words, he didn't want anything left in the Malachites. He wants them gone, obliterated. That was specific instruction given to Saul from Samuel, from God. Verse 7, or Samuel 15. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to instruction all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, of the oxen, the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So I ask you, did Saul follow the command? Was he obedient or disobedient? He was disobedient. He didn't follow his specific instruction. So Samuel learns about it, verse 19. He said, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil inside the Lord? Well, here's Saul's justification. He said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Malachites to destruction. I consider that a lie. It sounds like my children trying to justify something. Or the kids on the bus. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted. He blamed it on the people. The best of the things devoted to destruction, the sacrifice to the Lord your God and go out. So Samuel then has to correct it. He says this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Then the famous line, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul didn't obey, he disobeyed. And Samuel made it known to him that he disobeyed. And they told him obeying the voice of the Lord is what is expected. But I ask you this then for Saul. Did Saul's disobedience result in his death at this moment? No, it did not. Now he lost favor with God, and the remainder of his days are full of misery. He's not going to be long with king. It's when David comes to the equation soon after, and He's going to become the new king, but Saul's life was spared. So no, God does not always deal as harshly as you see what happened to Uzzah in this account with people's disobedience. And then similarly, we even can recognize that in our disobedience, in our rebellion, in our sin, our lives are spared. Aren't they? Maybe we should add this, and don't get me wrong, our disobedience does result in death. Paul rightly declared in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But notice that truth is declared, notice the last part of the verse, and all things left out. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all it means is God still gets upset, maybe even angry when we disobey, but with his love and compassion, he offers us reconciliation via his son. Again, God expects from his creation obedience. In fact, Jesus told his disciples to be obedient. And that obedience actually stems from love. John records the words I want you to see in John 14. He says, Jesus speaking, he says to the disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Of course, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you manifest yourself to us, not to the world? Jesus answered, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Then finally, verse 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Notice how Jesus directly related and linked obedience to love. One commentary I was reading said it this way. If our faith in God is genuine, we will live a lifestyle characterized by holiness, modeling the example set for us by Jesus Christ. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. And then the part I want you to really hear. We obey his commands, not because we have to, but because we love him and we want to. The key 
point of the message really is obedience. Following his word, following his commands is indicative of our love we have for God. It's the right thing for us to do. God loved us so much he gave us his son. Can't we at least be obedient to him to illustrate our love for him? We're about to close. Before we do, give you three things to remember also that pertains to obedience. Three quick things. Number one is this. Obedience enables us to live a life of joy, confident in our eternal hope. We can be rewarded in numerous ways by God, but perhaps the best way, the best reward for our obedience is our heavenly home that awaits us. Secondly, obedience is important because others are watching how you're living and our testimony to glorify God. People are watching you. They know you come to church. They know what you stand for. You've made it known to them, or somehow they see something different about you. And it's right that you should be obedient because they're watching. Maybe the best illustration I could think of when it comes to obedience and how it illustrated to someone how they also need to honor the Lord was in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they stood firm in their faith, they would not succumb to Nebuchadnezzar and his demand. They illustrated their obedience and faithfulness to God. And then in turn, it affected Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, he was watching them as others were. So yeah, we should be obedient because others are watching us. And it may lead them to live. And third is this. Obedience to God is not only a way to worship him, but a way to get closer to him. By obeying all the things, even the mundane things in life, you're showing God that you are willing and able to obey whatever he asks you. It draws you closer to him. Obedience. One word to incorporate into our new lives, or our lives for the new year. Obedience. It's something that makes sure we add. If we're not being obedient somehow, some way now, add it to 2024. Let me just say it this way for final word. If you want the new year to be better than the old year as we start tomorrow, Practice, incorporate obedience each and every day to God the Father. He will bless you. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today as we start a new year of how we can key and focus upon obedience to you. It tells us, Lord, today as we look into your text how you expect obedience from your creation. So, Lord, let us today just heed the message and heed the word and begin to exercise obedience into our lives. In fact, Lord, let us start today. It's the last day of the year in which we're living. But, Lord, it's never too late to start being obedient to you. So let us start today for exercising obedience to you and to your command, your statutes, and your ways. Let's just love you, illustrate our love for you and obedience. We do thank you, your son Jesus. It's his name we pray.